Hey, and welcome to Product Journeys. I'm Frank Gleisner. And I'm Lachlan Robertson. We're both product managers stumbling our way through our product journeys. We're out to meet amazing product people and learn a bit about their skills and experiences. And today we are chatting to Jess Birchall. Jess immigrated to New Zealand 10 years ago with a pretty cool family connection to the country. She's passionate about digitizing small businesses and enabling them to succeed. She's been over eight years working in the software industry, and she loves that her current role as a people and product leader at Zero enables her to grow and coach others while building valuable solutions for customers. She also co-founded her own business called Toastable, a marketplace to book your events, which has been an incredible learning journey for her on how to develop a product from just an idea and then build a business around that. Welcome, Jess. It's very nice to have you joining us today. We're going to start with your product journey, as we usually do. So tell us how you got to where you are today. Awesome. No, thanks for having me. A bit about me, Jessica Birchall. As you can tell, I'm an American accent. Living in Auckland, New Zealand, there's not that many Americans that have decided to live here. I've been here 10 years, and I actually came and studied university here. Finishing high school, I obviously was a bit different and rebelled against the typical American pathway going to an American state school or private school, and I really wanted to study overseas and abroad. So I moved to New Zealand. I applied to University of Auckland and got in. I made the decision in about three weeks. So I was close to graduating, was like, I'm going to go to a university overseas, applied, got in within like a week and moved to New Zealand a month later, a week after my birthday, after graduating high school. So it was a big move. And through that process, I realized I really wanted to study something that was going to be applicable anywhere in the world, knowing that maybe I wasn't going to stay in New Zealand. So I ended up studying bachelors of commerce, majoring in information systems and supply chain. And so with that major, you learn a lot about how to architect and design software systems. And both my parents work in tech. And so that's what kind of inspired me to learn a bit more about the tech space. And then while I was doing uni, I got my first internship working for a tech consulting company. And I started my first role in product there. It wasn't even called product at the time. So this was like 10 years ago. And I didn't even know what product management was. I just was like, I'm going to be an intern in this cool tech company. And they were like, hey, we're building an internal system using Microsoft SharePoint. We've got a couple of devs and a scrum master go away and design this system for our content for our employees. So um, just built a backlog, which I didn't even know was called a backlog back then. But they were like, there's this tool called Jira. You can use this and work with the engineers to developers is what we used the term at the time to build this thing. And so that was my first role in product management, playing a bit of a BA, scrum master, product owner hat. That was six months and it was a really awesome experience. It made me realize how much influence and impact you can have as a non-technical person in a software delivery team. So from there, I did another internship, worked more as a product manager type role in working mainly as in what we called the BAU team. So we were the team that wasn't delivering the fancy new features for the 
for the business. We were just the team running the products in production. And we unpacked what the defects were in a given day. And I just went through that process of how do you prioritize a million defects in a system? And that was really interesting to learn how to just run a product in production, not just building products that are new. From there, I finished uni and then took a grad role at a company called Deloitte. And this was my decision. Do I stay in New Zealand or do I go overseas? And I just couldn't leave New Zealand. I just loved it here so much. And then when I got the role, it was sort of like, well, I've got a role, so I'll just stay here and see how it goes. Ended up moving from Auckland to Wellington, worked at Deloitte and got to work with a lot of government clients on what they call big transformation programs. So you go in and all this creaky legacy technology that was built decades ago. And then from there, I went to zero in Wellington, and that was four and a half years ago. And I took on a strategy role. So this is where my career took a bit of a left turn out of being in the execution side of product delivery and went into strategy. And that was intentional. I loved the execution, but I wanted to develop my skills and toolkit and how do you actually think strategically about why you're building what you're building and is this the right thing to build and really get that strategic experience and from there spent three years in a strategy role and at the time there wasn't even a strategy team there was just a handful of people with strategy titles and then we would just be allocated to different parts of the businesses thinking about the strategic opportunities whatever was the focus of the leadership at the time and i was able to work closely on how we price and package products. And that was a new experience that takes a lot of commercial understanding. So what price point do you actually make this product? Should this be bundled with this feature? And how do you know which bundling options are best for getting the optimal customer uptake as well as revenue for the business? And so that was a really cool experience that I had. And then from there, I realized, love the strategy, but missed the execution. So I really wanted to take the strategy and execute it. And so I moved back into product over two years ago now, and I've been in product ever since. That's super cool, especially this real focus on strategy. How did you move into strategy having no background in it? Yeah, it was a little bit of using my experience in consulting. Strategy is really about breaking down a problem and putting options on the table and what are the best options and leaning on my experience and consulting, working on technology projects with Deloitte for clients and going in and actually helping clients understand the best options and the best way they should potentially build this. And so I would say a lot of the time, a lot of people are doing strategy without calling it strategy. It's really about what's the best options on the table and how do we choose the right option and going through that process of making a strategic choice. But yes, that does sound very simple. <laughs> I've oversimplified it probably. But. <laughs> no, I, I'm more trying to make it accessible in a way. If someone hasn't done much, as you said, formal, maybe they've just been playing around those different options. What are some of the pitfalls or the things that you'd recommend watching out for as far as forming strategy or executing perhaps on it? Yeah, I'd say leaning on some toolkits that most of us are familiar with, with like the double diamond approach. Don't converge too soon really make sure you're thinking broad and making sure you're thinking about all the options before you're leaning in on one or two too early. I think a lot of the times we can bias ourselves towards 
the one that we attach ourselves or think is the best, but we haven't actually gone through that thought process to say, well, is this the only one on the table? And let's think and putting them all on the table. So yeah, keeping that double diamond approach in mind by staying divergent for as long as you can. Uh, yeah, good advice. The, the other thing I guess I'm curious about, and this is maybe perhaps just my own perception of it, strategy takes time to form. Can you do fast strategy? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting one. I'd say it depends, which is the classic answer. Like I mentioned you're kind of always doing strategy. The choice could be quite small. Do we quickly build this experiment over here or do we put a button over here or oh, no, these are the five options we have we could quickly make a decision on that because we've got all the data or we have the right people in the room that have enough knowledge about that particular problem or question we're trying to answer but if it's something that we don't have the knowledge or you don't understand a lot or anyone in the business understands that's when i think strategy can take a lot longer because you need to be spending more time understanding the space whatever it is that you're trying to make a decision on in a direction it's like how to how yeah. to fun strategy almost <laughs> <laughs> it's like we need a, a a toolkit on that i think <laughs> that would be totally. a good i'm gonna go right back to the beginning i love that you just decided in three weeks to come to new zealand were there other options there or what has tied you to new zealand now it's not product related but i'm just intrigued yeah so another option was England. I'm a bit of a, a, a mutt, I guess. I'm a British citizen as well. So my parents are British and my entire extended family live in England. So I'm the first American in my family. So that was an option on the table. But the reason I didn't choose to go to England was because I spent most of my life going to England, visiting family most years. And I really wanted a new experience. But I also have a bit of a weird family story with New Zealand. A lot of people are like, what's your connection to New Zealand? So back in World War II, my nan during World War II, she was a little girl and they connected children of parents who were in the war as pen pals. And she was connected to a woman in Matamata during World War II. And they pen paled for 40 years from the wow. yeah early 40s to the late 90s. And my nan went to New Zealand in the 90s and visited this woman for the first time that she'd been pen paling with for 40 odd years or so. And so my nan had a really special connection to New Zealand from that experience. And she talked about New Zealand. So I think that subconsciously was in the back of my mind about New Zealand that made me come here. That's epic. 40 years. Yeah. You've, you've stayed. So it seems like that connection is deeper than... Yeah, the initial decision to come as well. Definitely, yeah. No, so that was that's cool, and it's a great country, and it's awesome that there's companies like Zero, where you can work in the in the tech sector, which in New Zealand isn't very big compared to America or other countries around the world. But I think Zero is provide a lot of opportunities for people to work in this industry, which is awesome. Another. One of the things you touched on before was packaging or pricing products. Comparing perhaps the New Zealand market of pricing stuff versus internationals, do you find it differs or you know, how, do you, how do you approach that type of thing in the SaaS world? It totally depends on the market you're in. I'd say one learning I had was that people are willing to pay more in other countries than in New Zealand. 
And so what we also found was that people were willing to what we called like overbuying. So buying the highest valued plan, but they didn't necessarily need all the bells and whistles in the plan in other countries. We found that through our research as as well. But then in terms of bundling, I'd say the needs of the small businesses, for example, as Zero's market remain the same. They need to do their accounting or they need to do their payroll or they've got employees they need to reimburse for expenses. So the needs and the feature set within the plans typically aren't too different from regions. Maybe some countries have a higher need for a particular feature depending on what their regulatory environment is. But I'd say broadly, it's feature sets would remain the same because needs don't tend to be vastly different from that perspective. But there might be nuances in each country that would maybe result in an add-on for a particular product that that particular market would be able to attach to a plan at a price point for that country. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm also just thinking about the concept of that marketplaces and like not just add-ons within our products, but like also complementary ones as well, which is, yeah. is quite interesting. The other thing that I'm thinking about is, you know, the I think it's, is it called product ladder with like Apple as an example, where they have products that are at an entry price point and then they just have steps up in prices that, oh, if you only pay an extra $50 more, you can get the next thing. And if you're going to do that, why not just go? There's like this weird psychological trick thing that a lot of people lean into. And it's like, on the pencil for your ipad and like yeah. all those things that they just upsell people yeah so interesting from like a, a business strategy how do you actually sell product to people and what do they need versus what can you sell to them kind of and where that line lies yeah it's like a bit of psychology in it as well not just the quantitative numbers and pricing it's what's the value of these plans and how do you sell the value to different customer segments and and what do they think is valuable as well that you can narrow in on? It's totally, yeah. it's almost like advertising or that empathy, you know, can you actually get someone to think that they need something? They don't need it at all, but can you just tap into that psychology of, of individuals and be like, hey, you know you need this. <laughs> yeah. And for, for example, when you've got the ladders of thinking about how that your customers can grow with you or how the, their needs expand and so then you're you're not only offering one thing to them and then when they outgrow you as a pr product or as a business whatever you're selling you can actually have them carry on and not churn because you actually have added more value as their needs have changed yeah there's a, a life cycle progression there kind of yeah. thing that you factor in yeah that's that's and i, I like that because it sort of brings back to one of the core pillars of product right that empathy with your customer and trying to understand what's actually going to be useful for them yeah that's a really good point you talked about the prioritizing that massive list of defects and i guess something that we're always interested in because prioritization is kind of a big thing in the product world what are some of the tools or frameworks that you regularly go to and use or really like using yeah, there's so many out there that you can learn and it can be almost overwhelming how how many frameworks there are for people, I'd say. For sure, especially with something like prioritization. There's so many different ways you can do it. How do you choose the right one? Yeah, totally. I'd say that I'd probably have two that are really important to me. And the first one is quite well known in the tech industry, which is OKRs. So having having your objectives really clearly set helps with that prioritization of where you're going in the in the medium to long term 
And then those key results of how are we going to get to that objective in a given quarter or a given couple of quarters, depending on what you're trying to achieve, getting really crisp on those and spending the time as a product person and as a product team with your cross-functional team and really unpacking that and writing it down clearly, going through a process of re rewriting it down. Does this still make sense? Is really valuable to then unpacking is this initiative that we wanted to prioritize or think we should prioritize really makes sense against this and is that actually moving us towards where we want to go from an objective point of view i'd say that that tool and the methodology around okrs is to me really important one and the second one that i like to lean on a lot is assumptions mapping so as a product person we have a lot of assumptions a lot of the times you learn something about a customer and you might not have all the data about what that customer really needs or maybe the the rest of the journey that that customer might be going through in your product but you can make some assumptions and so articulating and writing down what are the assumptions we have about this particular problem space we're trying to design for for our customers and then asking yourselves is this assumption something we can validate if if it's not an assumption we can validate how risky is this assumption if it's wrong so you can actually prevent yourself from weeks and weeks of analysis on these assumptions when you identify actually this assumption if we are wrong it's not that big of a deal so let's not spend our time trying to analyze and get the perfect answer for this let's take some bets and and move on to the more risky assumptions and i think that saves you a lot of time in the fuzzy process of product at the beginning yeah i think that's really insightful because yeah a lot of teams do spend all that time be like oh what if what if what if what if it's like well hang on a second what are we actually talking about here yeah yeah definitely and sometimes you can validate them really quickly because you, you know you actually have the data or cool that makes sense let's move on or you can quite quickly go well that doesn't make sense let's Let's not even try and progress this idea further. Let's move on to the next thing we need to do. Have you ever been wrong with that? Have you been like, this is not a risky assumption? I mean, well, actually, yes. it turned out to be something. Yes, definitely. I think we're wrong a lot of the times in product. <laughs> I think that's where that test, learn, refine, and accepting failure mindset is really important because we don't live in a black and white world for our customers and a lot of the times especially in small business as a market our customers in small business are so unique each industry is quite different every customer's needs are quite different so sometimes when you make an assumption about a customer segment you can actually get it right for some but get it quite wrong for others and in certain product areas that can be quite bad for customers if we've delivered a solution that's not going to fit their needs and then they think it's going to fit their needs and they've bought this tool and, and then it turns out that it's completely not fit for purpose for them. So that's definitely happened in, in my experience. But then you quite quickly learn and sometimes you roll back the product change you've made immediately or you just respond to that customer feedback and then do a retro. How did we get this assumption wrong? I like that. Just that idea of bringing it back to not just whether that feature landed or not, but the assumption that led to building that thing as well. I, I feel like a lot of times we perhaps don't go back to that layer, right? It's just like, oh, this thing didn't work, damn, rather than the actual underlying reason that we thought it would work in the first place. So that, yeah, it's yeah. a really cool lesson. 
And getting your success criteria, cool. When we've launched this thing, how do we know that it's achieved what we intended it to achieve? And knowing that before you've launched it is, to me, really mature product teams practice that every time they're launching a major feature or change or product to a customer. They've got that written down. They're measuring it in a month or you know, two later, they're referring back to it and saying, cool, this is where we went wrong. One of my teams recently, we launched a product and we had an assumption that we would immediately get 30% of our customer base adopting this tool within two or three months. And we've learned so far that in three months, only 10% of our customer base has adopted this tool. And because we've measured that, and now we know that we're focused on why, and we know that this tool is needed, but what is it about the way we've built this that's meant the adoption's low or what more do we need to do to get the adoption higher? So now we're able to go through that process and rethink our experience that we've built based on that number because we're reflecting on it. It's cool that you have confidence that that product is actually needed, but it's the question that you're sort of validating there is just the time frame and the barriers for adoption, right? And I, I guess one of the things I find is really interesting is the leading versus lagging indicators and how long it takes for something to actually be successful or on the right track. Yeah. And it's yeah, just those compounding assumptions for something to actually work is, yeah. is really interesting. Sometimes the feedback loops are longer. Sometimes they're quite short. You launch something and a customer will immediately have something to say about it or love it or not love it. And that would be quite quick. But when you're kind of changing, I think for this example I'm talking about, we're changing the behavior of a user in our product to use something different. That change in behavior for a customer or user is really not something that I think people just do overnight. And I think as tech people, we love adopting new tools. We love automating our day to day. But in in small business, especially these people are busy with with other things. They're not changing their business processes every time something's changed in product. So it takes them time that we have to kind of acknowledge, I think. To just dive a little further into this example, validating that next step or sort of the things you want to try. I'm assuming using data from analytics as far as what people are clicking on, but also going out and chatting and interviewing people. Is it that kind of combination? Yeah. Yeah. So the usually the quantitative insight, that data of did they click on it? Are they using it? Is the kind of trigger for, okay, why not? Or what's going on here? You don't get that answer from quantitative data. So then you'll go in and yeah, let's let's maybe talk to some of these customers who haven't adopted it. And we've learned recently, a lot of them just aren't even aware of it. The challenge isn't even the, what we've it's built. Your, yeah. It's like a awareness piece. Totally. I think it's so obvious to us that it's there and then it's just not at all to, to customers. And I like that time that people take to adapt to things because I guess what, we, what we've done was have a change, send it out, and people respond immediately. And that immediate reaction is like, oh my God, you've changed it. This is awful. I don't like it. I don't like change. But if you maybe ask them a week later, they'd be like, oh yeah, what, what changed? What was it like before? I can't remember. So I yeah. feel like that, that time difference of when you ask people also makes a big difference in that too. Yeah. Yeah. You've got that adoption curve that we should always consider. You're always going to get those people who are the early adopters, technology enthusiasts. They'll always be the first ones to adopt something new, but then you're always going to have those more conservative users in your product that take time and respond to change differently. So thinking about that time scale and your user cohorts adopting is really 
key. Some powerful lessons there to ask the the more general question for you. What's, I guess, been your biggest lesson in your product career thus far? Yeah, to me, it's that product is a team sport. So you can't do it alone. In all of my successes and failures in product in almost 10 years, the one thing that's always made a big difference is the people you have in the team helping you unpack and break down the problems gets you to better solutions. And also, it means that you aren't alone in trying to do it yourself, because sometimes these problems we're trying to solve in technology are really complex, and not a single person's brain could even know all the ways in which we could unpack the problem. And so leaning on people who have expertise in engineering, design, product marketing, people who understand the product deeply, like customer experience representatives who are living and breathing it with our customers every day, the power of all those brains together ultimately creates a better solution for our customers. And so that to me is the the biggest lesson I've learned in, in my years of product management. That's awesome. It reminds me of diversity, not only of different parts of a business, but also different cultural backgrounds, like diversity and inclusion type things. You just get different perspectives coming into a room that slightly change the way you think about something, which I think is forgotten yeah. sometimes. As product people, we can really use our facilitation skills in that. And I think being a good facilitator of of a meeting or of many perspectives and all of those different roles and functions and bringing that all together to a plan and a next step on a solution is is like a skill. It's an art and it takes time to to refine and really uh, do it well. And so that I think and when you're working in a team, that product person can really bring that to the to the team in the room. Yeah, 100%. There are so many different skills that product people have, should have, all the range. As somebody new coming into product, what skills should they focus on developing? As a new person to a product, I'd say you want to focus on a on core set of skills. And that's like, how do you think about your backlog? what does cutting a backlog look like? There's many different ways to cut a backlog, but the the key thing is what's the user value slices that you would actually put into production in front of a customer and how would you get there in your backlog to achieving that slice? Ultimately, if you know you need to build something, but you don't know how to cut the backlog and get it and work with engineering teams and get it into production, then you can't execute on your ideas. And that to me is the measure of success as a product person. So taking that problem and how do you deliver that to the users and the the backlog is the vehicle, but there's many ways you can do that. And so I think developing your skills and toolkits and how you do that and work with engineering teams to do that is really important. And I think that that core skill you can really nail as a more junior product practitioner. Once you've kind of nailed that, I would say then you start getting into deeply understanding the customer problems beyond your backlog. What's our next customer problem that we should be solving? And how do I identify these customer problems? Do I lean on learning how to do user interviews or working with design to do user interviews and just really making sure you're having that touch point with your customers? I'd say those are the two two areas I think as a junior product person, you can focus your energies and get really good at and it would make a big difference to your career and how you are successful in delivering product to a customer. What are some of the ways that you go about working with engineering teams or other teams? Sometimes in product, 
people may feel the pressure of having the answer to things, even though the pressure shouldn't be there, but it feels like it is sometimes. Yeah, I think making the goals really clear and bringing the team together. I think that's where we can add the values. This is the goal or this is the user story we're trying to achieve. How do we do this team? Help me figure out how we can unpack this. I always find engaging engineering teams earlier is always better because they bring a perspective to the problem and also bring constraints to the problem that immediately can take things off the table in terms of how you might solve for it. It is awesome. Yeah, I like it. So you're going to a party or a barbecue and you meet someone who you don't know and they're like, what do you do? And you say, well, I'm a product manager and they have no idea what that is. How do you explain to them what a product manager does? Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) I feel like a lot of people have different experiences with the title product manager. So the two questions I'd say that we always focus on at a high level, like really high level are, are we building the right thing? And the second question is, are we building the thing right? And the, the, the things that we unpack in those questions is what a product manager does. Yeah, and I guess that just links back to the, is it valuable and is it feasible to actually make or build that thing, right? Yeah. So, great answer. Across your career thus far then, what's been your greatest accomplishment? My greatest accomplishment, there's been quite a few different ones, but the one that probably comes top of mind is executing on an acquisition, which is, I think, a very interesting experience that not a lot of product practitioners get. Especially in software, we tend to lean more on the build, we're going to build it. But in this experience, I had the opportunity to actually assess, is building the right thing to do? Or should we partner or should we buy? In this case, we recommended acquiring a product that already was doing this really well in the market. And because it was so well established, we knew that if we went on a build journey, it would take us years to become competitive and really reach product market fit because the product market was pretty well defined. And so we identified a player in the market and ended up acquiring that business. And it was a really interesting experience because it's hard acquiring businesses. It's it's bigger than just software and building the software, which is where I can know best and lean in on. But it's actually how do you acquire a whole business and go through the understanding of is this the right business pairing with the current business and and not just about the product. So the product is only one element of an acquisition. So I learned so much about how you acquire businesses and was really proud that after many, many months of hard work with many different teams, we were able to complete the transaction and acquire the business and launch it to market. It's awesome. I'm really interested in the challenges that you had as well. What was the hardest part of it? I think the hardest part was recognizing that no option was going to be the the perfect option. There was always going to be trade-offs and compromises because For example, we were really lucky that meeting the team and working closely with the team before the transaction finished, they were such an awesome group of people. And culturally, you could just tell that it fit. And so that trade-off of being in a different market than where we're operating felt really easy to compromise on because the team was such a great culture. And it was, we're actually already working in a very global business already. So that was like one example of a challenge that we faced in terms of making the, the decision. 
Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating example. And I'm even just thinking now, even the step before you get to that bill versus buy, like to buy, you still need the budget to be able to do that. And you need to have enough research to support that it's actually a valid thing to pursue. So fascinating thing to be a part of. And I'm sure many, many lessons, which is yeah, awesome. Definitely. We might switch over to our rapid fire questions. Do you have a favorite book or article uh, that you would recommend? I do. It's called Think Again by Adam Grant. So good. It's such such a good book. It's I've read it about a year ago when it came out. It's the best book I've probably read in many years. It's about the power of knowing what you don't know, and basically talking about how intelligence is more than just the ability to think and learn, but it's also the ability to rethink and unlearn because of the rapidly changing world we're in and how much information changes. You have to feel a bit of discomfort and it takes courage to question your own opinions. So it's a very interesting book that I really enjoy. That sounds awesome. And I think Adam Grant has just brought out a new podcast, Rethinking, which must be cool. Oh, aligned I with that. Yeah. I didn't know that. I'll have to listen to the podcast. Well, do, do you listen to any other podcasts by chance? Yes, I do. I listen to The Daily by The New York Times. It's typically a 25 to 40 minute episode, Monday to Friday, US time. And it's just a quick snapshot of the most important news topic of the day. And so it's a way I consume my news, basically. It's got more of an American focus, but it does talk about a lot of global topics. Yeah, it's a really great podcast as well. There you go. What's the thing you're most grateful for at the moment? Oh, this is a great question. This is quite deep, but I'd say the opportunity to be educated, very lucky and privileged to have been educated, have the opportunity to go to school and be able to afford to go to university. And I think not everyone in the world has that opportunity. And so I'm really grateful for that. That's super cool. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, feeling grateful can sometimes be quite personal and sort of some of stories behind it is there anything else you'd like to share or takeaways or calls to action yeah i think especially in product management back to that point around product being a team sport i think you gotta enjoy the journey and and the people and the relationships you build to getting product out the door customers and the focus on customers should always be at the center but then the team around it is, is really important. And so if you, if you can enjoy that journey with a team and enjoy the people you work with, it just makes product management and what you're doing day to day just so much more fun. I love that. We're talking in our team about how technology wouldn't exist if it weren't for the people. Totally. <laughs> so, yeah. So true. Thank you so much. We've come to the end. That was awesome. Thanks so much for having me. And hopefully all of this was valuable for anyone listening.